Welcome to English Lit Pod. A place where we show you what English, both lit and lang, really is. Join us in our discussions about the meanings of words, the representations we create, the connotations and denotations. Delve into the importance of literature, the power of narratives and the strength of words. And, most importantly, discover that English is more than just a boring textbook. It really is lit. Hello, welcome to another episode. So this time it's a bit of a conversation between Deborah and me, and we're going to be continuing the theme of representation. So you might have heard an episode focusing on representation in language and media, but we did want to provide a bit of a counterbalance to that and just focus on representation in literature. So within that, I think Deborah and I are going to be giving you a bit of an overview of what that representation looks like in our A-level texts. So we study those A-level texts through the lens of social and political protest, which we can talk to you about in a second, which means that that representation and race, gender and the intersection between those two is quite a powerful piece of protest a lot of the time. So we'll give you a bit of an introduction to the texts in case you haven't actually read any of them or heard of them before. The three main ones we're going to be talking about in relation to representation are The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. I believe that was published in 1979. Deborah, feel free to correct me if I mess any of this up. Um, The Kite Runner was published in 2006 or 2003, either one of those, take whichever one you want. (laughs) Um, And then we're also going to be talking about Othello, obviously one of Shakespeare's most famous works, which was kind of written in 1603, 1604, but first performed in 1622, I believe. So very different contexts bit of back in time, going back in history, but also some more contemporary works that we might all be able to relate to. Deborah, do you want to take your pick of one of those texts and just introduce it a little bit? So I will talk about The Handmaid's Tale, which is actually a book that I read when I was 15. And I'm just going to be real here. Half of the stuff in that book went straight over my head. It was more like, <laughs> oh, look, they're all dressed in the same colours. Yes. Oh, look, she has, has a relationship with the driver. Like, I don't really clock anything there. But Atwood likes to classify it as speculative fiction. Mm. So it's a work that is commenting and critiquing society, the different structures we have in place that make it very easy for totalitarian regimes to come in. So it more so critiques how we react to different political forces and their impositions on us that restrict our freedom, how we treat women in society, Mm. how women are represented, how in patriarchal society and I wouldn't call would you call the UK a patriarchal society now it has patriarchal conventions but yes but not necessarily more so <laughs> yeah. than any other western yeah powerhouse. Um, how these conventions we still have in a not patriarchal society can lead to a lot of issues if we don't address them properly yeah and I think what's interesting about that as well is the point of speculative fiction remember I was writing this in the 1970s and one of the main aspects of speculative fiction, as she herself has said, is to use the means already at hand. So it's interesting when we read that now in tw- in our modern context in 2021, to reflect back on what those means were at the time in the 1970s. So she was writing in Berlin at a time of conflict, obviously, and a lot of those inspirations for the kind of conventions that Deborah just mentioned are taken from that time, but also historically speaking, women have been oppressed, um, still are, unfortunately, and it's interesting how literature reflects that. But that's The Handmaid's Tale. Um, 
very brief overview, obviously. Read the book, it's very good. Um, and The Kite Runner is also focusing on those same kind of conventions. So how women function within the patriarchy, what men perceive their roles to be in comparison to what their roles should actually be. And what's good about The, hand, uh, the Kite Runner, sorry, is that you have so many representations of women. Most of them are in stereotypical roles. So you have Sanabar, for example, who is both a mother in a quite unconventional um, way at the beginning of the novel, but kind of progresses into that stereotype as the book goes in. And you also have missing mother figures. And there was an interesting Hassaniyad interview where he actually said that he wasn't trying to write a novel without women, but it just so happened that the society he was portraying alienated those women from the main main society. So they did just didn't pop up into the first third of his book or so. Um, and then you also have other figures like Amir's later wife in, in like the second half of the novel, who in some ways supports those stereotypes, I think, because she still has that maternal instinct, still very much takes on the wife role, but also transgresses the stereotypical expectations of an Afghan woman. Um, it's interesting to note that The Kite Runner is very much a work of historical fiction. So that's focusing on the conflict in Afghanistan. And we're going to talk about a bit about A Thousand Splendid Sons, which is the second novel that Hassini published, which is very much more focused on women as opposed to the patriarchal world. Um, but as a quick overview, we have a character, his name is Amir, he's the main character. Um, I think the consensus in our English class is that he was a little bit pathetic. <laughs> Not sure where you stand on that, Deborah. Yeah, he was. He was a little bit pathetic at the beginning, but it's kind of a journey that we go on with him um, of growth, of realisation. Um, and he has a best friend, his name is Hassan. Um, and they come from very different backgrounds, both socioeconomically and religiously speaking. And that leads to quite a lot of conflict in between them, especially really early in the novel, actually. I think it's like on page 70 that things start falling apart a little bit. And that's where the action kind of starts, really. Um, and essentially, one thing leads to another. And Amir and his dad, Baba, end up moving to America. And that's where you kind of see a lot of contrast between American society and American expectations or attitudes towards race, religion, in comparison to Afghan Afghanistan traditions. So that's a quick overview of The Kite Runner. Deborah, do you want to do Othello briefly? So, so Othello is another text, a play we're studying by Shakespeare, as Flav mentioned before, written or published in 1603. It's actually taken from an original short story with a few modifications made, mm. like giving the main character a name and other supporting characters names, and also changing the length of time at which the main character and his wife were married. So representation does play quite a big theme in this, well, a subtle, but I think important theme in the play mostly because of the way we perceive or other characters perceive the main character, the tragic hero, Othello, and how oftentimes he's referred to by his heritage, by his ethnicity, and also the antagonist in the way of invoking the insecurities that the protagonist possesses, kind of plays on the otherness of the main character, stating that they don't understand the disposition of the woman of Venice, and really capitalising off that 
otherness that the main character possesses. So I believe that in all of the texts we've mentioned, representation plays a key role in how we as readers perceive characters and how these characters are perceived by those around them. Like in The Handmaid's Tale, how Offred being a woman is treated very differently and how in The Kite Runner, the American attitudes towards Afghan customs are very different. And as mentioned in Othello, how the protagonist is viewed and the hardships they encounter because of their identity. So representation does play a key role in our texts and we're going to elaborate on that. Yeah, I think just to pick up on that very last point about Othello as well, there is a whole question now around whether Othello is a racially sensitive play because as Deborah mentioned, a lot of the time the main character Othello is referred to as a Moor. So that's initially like a descendant of either Northern Africa or Sub-Saharan Africa. And the fact that a lot of characters do refer to him by the epithet the Moor as opposed to his actual name Othello has very problematic connotations, I think, in our society, um, more so perhaps than at the time it was being performed in the 17th century. So what do you think? Do you think to some extent there is some insensitivity around it? Should we be performing it in the modern world or is it more of a let's study it as a faraway text that we don't take too seriously? That is an interesting question. And before I go into this, I just want to say, disclaimer, views can change. And when Mm. new knowledge is granted, obviously my opinions will differ. So whenever I say things, remember, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I can change my view. But I do think we should look at what is the purpose of the text. So for example, a little segue into last book club meetings book, Girl, Woman, Other, I would say this text had a larger purpose of representing the truth. So when we were speaking about quite sensitive issues and even like racist or homophobic language was used, we know the author wasn't intending to marginalise or discriminate against certain groups. They were aiming to present a truth of society, a story of society that exists. They weren't hiding from the truth. So when we look at plays, we should ask ourselves, is this play coming with the intent of promoting these beliefs or are they merely representing a truth in our society? History isn't sweet, history isn't pretty. We shouldn't run away from history, let's be frank. It's more about the purpose and how we utilize these texts. Are we using them and teaching them to students to show students that this is acceptable behavior or are we merely showing students a fragment of history? That is my two pence. Yeah, no, but I think (laughs) Emma Smith, I'm not sure if you had a chance to listen to her lecture, but Emma Smith really, kind of picked up on that when she said, I think there was a quote where, a moment where she said, Othello isn't a racist play, it's a play that interrogates attitudes to race. So I think when you observe, or when you kind of start thinking about these texts, more so as explorations, as opposed to particular messages, obviously some of them have messages that are more clear than others, but I think the point of Othello at its time of publication, as opposed to now, was more so to make audiences reflect on those attitudes. So what I think what's particularly powerful about Othello is that in the beginning, we are introduced to him as a tragic hero who stereotypically was white. Again, Emma Smith made this argument that at the time to have a black hero would have been very, very radical in the literature world, in the world of drama. But we we see Othello as a really res- like res- well-respected man at the beginning of the play, all the dukes and the seniors of the Venetian society refer to him as Othello. They actually, interestingly, refer to him by name, whereas his inferiors don't. (laughs) So that says quite a bit about that society. But we see a figure who isn't white, who does have power in society. And in many ways, I think that can be empowering. And then we all know that it's a tragedy. So as the play progresses, Othello does slip into some more stereotypical depictions of black men as jealous or 
particularly violent. Um, but it's interesting that it starts off with that not being his character. It suggests that it's not intrinsic to his nature for him to be violent or to be jealous. It's something that society brings out in him. So I think that exploration particularly implies that Shakespeare's message may not have been, let's all be racist, <laughs> more so let's actually reflect on our attitudes. Mm. And in the empowering way he presents Othello at the beginning, I think he does make readers reflect on that a little bit, but I'm not sure what your view is on that. No, I totally agree with you. And I think it links back to today where we press for representation. It's more so to show people that, okay, this person is foreign, this person is mm. coming from Africa, but they are still in a high position. So, you know. The importance of representation that yeah. it's not just certain positions that people are subject to because of their identity anyway let's just move on to the kite run and see what the yes. role of representation plays in that you spoke about it earlier how women weren't really represented and linking back to purpose and authorial intent it wasn't to purposely exclude women it was more mm -hmm. so the picture he was reflecting the side of history he was reflecting naturally marginalized those groups yeah and i think the point in that that's quite interesting is that he then does go on to write another novel that is solely focused on women so a thousand splendid sons was published in 2016 i think um 2018 definitely much later than the kite runner and in one of his interviews he makes it clear that the purpose of that book is to represent the other half of the kite runner because as Deborah said, he didn't intend to exclude women from the narrative of the kite runner, but they weren't naturally coming up in the stories and he didn't want to purposefully, very for like forcefully integrate women into that society or into those conversations when they wouldn't have been realistically involved. So in A Thousand Blended Sons, you have a dual narrative. So it's um, Miriam and Layla, and you get what half of, well, third of the novel actually is from Miriam's point of view, the other half, is it Mariam, Miriam? I read it quite a while ago, but I do remember the power it had. And the other third is taken up by Layla's narrative. And then the very final third, I think is more an amalgamation of the two. But the point is, it's a very female driven novel and men come in mainly as antagonistic figures, which is interesting because when women come into the kite runner, they're very maternal and very pacifying figures. So that balance in between those two texts is very interesting in its thorough intent. But to go kind of go back to the kite runner, I think it's interesting that we mainly get a depiction of women in Afghanistan as opposed to in America. So once we actually move to the American society, we're not exactly introduced to any new characters. We very much sit, stick to the same traditions, expectations imposed upon the Afghanistan women, but they are now in a new society and they're having to grapple with these new themes. And we have the idea that different generations are taking that better than others, for example. So Soraya, she ends up being, I don't want to spoil it too much, but she ends up being Amir's wife. Um, and when they are in America, Soraya very much finds a place within that society. I think she adheres to American stereotypes in that women are empowered and she doesn't exactly represent the stereotypical mother in many ways whereas her mother whose name escapes me now um but her mother very much even though she still is in america is still rooted in those afghan customs that teach women to be silent um and to not express political views there is a really interesting moment actually when we are introduced to that character where we're told that soraya's mother used to always sing 
before Sarah's father, um, a general, kind of came into the picture and then he told her to stop singing because it annoyed him or something along those lines. And she does stop singing. And I think that's interesting because it literally removes her voice. It removes her creative artistic expression. Um, and she's very much a side character in many ways, but I think because it's the kite runner, that representation is mainly in the margins. It's on the sidelines. Whereas in A Thousand Splendid Sons, that's for, very much at the foreground, isn't it? Have you read A Thousand Splendid Sons? No, I actually haven't, but from what you've said. Yeah, very much would recommend it. Um, I think it's interesting to see how those two differ. Um, but in The Kite Runner, I think you also have really, really um, interesting religious representation. That Deborah, do you want to speak a bit more about that? Yes. So that was something I really enjoyed about The Kite Runner. Um, and also Husini did say that the purpose of this book was to depict the truth of Afghanistan, a side that at the time it was written wasn't being presented in the media. And the way he presented Islam was more so as a, a religion of comfort, a religion of peace, something that Amir turned to during times of hardship and struggle when his world was falling down. And I think this was very important because, like you said before, it wasn't forced. It was more so a natural part of mm. the procession of events. And it's really important to represent two sides of every story. And thinking back to the representation of the diaspora, um, when Amir moved from Afghanistan to America, we got that Afghan representation when they were living there, but also how people's attitudes and character changed once they were in the US. And it's the same with religion and the kite runner. It was represented in the ways how it was used for to oppress, to abuse, as seen with the stoning in the Ghazi Stadium. Yeah. But it was also mm -hmm. represented as a source of refuge and peace, as seen with Amir after Sora being hospitalised. So Husini could really present two sides of the depictions and representations that we're no stranger to in today's society. Yeah, and I think the interesting side about the the interesting thing about those two different depictions is that I think one of the main things that connects all of our texts is actually that they critique the weaponization of religion much more than religion itself. We don't study in texts that critique religion as a thing. I think they all agree that it, it can be a positive thing, a source of comfort and joy, as you said. But what these texts critique, especially through their lens of social and political protest writing, is that weaponization. So in the kite run, as you said, you have that in chapter 16 at the Ghazi Stadium, where um, one of the speakers I can't remember their actual position, but one of the speakers um, manipulates the actual religion and doesn't deliver an actual representation of it. It's a very misrepresented version of the religion. And I think that's one of the things we spoke about in the other episode. Um, the fact that it's there, it's present, those themes are present, doesn't mean it's actual accurate representation. And I think there's an, an interesting comparison to be drawn between actual representation that we can accurately believe as opposed to misrepresentation and it's interesting to actually divide those two and then you have it in the in in the handmaid's tale as well where atwood does very briefly depict like there's a scene i'm not sure if you remember when moira stays with the quakers um where she she sees overhears them praying um and she has a very throwaway comment about oh i, I forgot people like this still found refuge in religion because for her it's something that's been weaponized against her so she's been turned away from religion because she only sees it as this weaponized tool of destruction essentially and depression and then even in Blake if we kind of focus on that poetry a little bit he doesn't exactly disagree with religious teachings it's only when authorities start manipulating and twisting 
that doctrine that he starts being a bit like hang on a second this isn't mm. right it's oppressing people like you have it in london the whole church bells you have it in the background but it's there it's oppressive it's meant to be like a constant force that you just can't escape and then in the garden of love as well he starts critiquing the representation of priests because of corruption in comparison to nature which is very much more left to men to individually interact with whereas religion's more so imposed upon them by a greater body of authority um and then interestingly there is a thread of religion in othello it's I, it's definitely not at the foreground um do you want to speak about that a little bit deborah yeah so you i would say it's more so a battle between identity rather than uh stark representation of religion yeah. Othello references his Christian roots when critiquing Rodrigo and Cassio's brawl and we see in Othello the use of religion more as a this, something that cements Othello's identity as a Venetian rather than the identity of the Moor, his other identity so you can also see how not only is religion represented in how it's used to oppress and how it's weaponized, and not only is it re- represented in how it's a source of peace and refuge for other people, but it's also represented as something so intrinsic to certain people's identity. If we take into account the respective contexts of these texts and the times when they were written in, it was a time where we were living in quite a polarized politically and religiously, you could say, society, especially with The Handmaid's Tale written mm. in response to the rise of the far right. We can see how people really entwine their own personal identity with their religious beliefs and this is very dangerous because we can no longer critique a religion or moral values without critiquing you as well and people get really offensive and sensitive so we really want to draw out the right and wrong because now we've identified our moral beliefs with our own personality it's that how do I explain it (laughs) do you want to take it do you know what I'm saying yeah I think especially in the idea of identity and blame and responsibility if we go to the handmaid's tale there's an interesting flashback um in chapter 28 where um we get a sense of how gilead came around so gilead's like the oppressive society that atwood imagines it's a very fictional society in america um and interestingly that chapter tells us that the higher powers in gilead blamed the islamic religion for that extremism so essentially there's a bit where um, it's implied that it was Islamic terrorists who actually gunned down um, the Congress and that's how Gilead came to be. It was from, from a point of extremism that they had to fight against. And I think the fact that those religions are focused on in both the Kite Runner and in The Handmaid's Tale allows us as readers, especially when we read both of them, um, to really reflect on our own views of that religion or generally of representation of religion. And I think that's where the power of literature, especially through that lens of social and political protest comes from, it's that it really encourages us to reflect. And even if they don't reach a particular conclusion, which some of them are quite, are left quite ambiguously in terms of their intents. And you have to, I think we kind of get all of this because we have to analyze it as part of our A-level curriculum. But had we had, have, had we been reading these as normal books, just that we picked up without going into this depth, those themes don't jump out immediately. So there is still some complexity and ambiguity that you have to work your way through to get to the depth of the actual intent. But I think to kind of start summarizing our discussion a bit and coming to an end, that's why literature is so powerful in its representation because it allows us to really connect to experiences that we ourselves might not have. Um, and that's what these books do really well. The Kite Runner for me particularly, I think it's, it's slightly more emotive 
book, particularly because it's a first narrative. It's a first person narrative from a narrator we don't love, which also works with The Handmaid's Tale, but offered passivity and kind of emotional isolation from the narrative makes it a lot harder to connect to that, I feel, which I'm sure is a purpose that I would consider as well. But yeah, with a kite runner particularly, you really become emotionally invested in these narratives. And when you become emotionally invested, it's much harder to differentiate between those experiences and your own. And to some extent, you find some commonality in all of it, really. Like, I personally haven't experienced any of the things that Amir has gone through specifically, but there is still that thread of friendship that connects different races, different religions. There's still that, like, gender balance that you get that many people will experience even in different customs that aren't necessarily restricted to Afghanistan. And so I think that's a nice way of closing it on that idea that literature is key to understanding different experiences and representation is very important in that. As a segue into one of the endeavors that Deborah and I have recently taken up, we've launched a blog very recently called Noah Blog, <laughs> um, very creatively. Name. Yeah, of course. Um, it's essentially the point of the blog is to bring new perspectives to your screens, to introduce you to some things that you might not come across in your natural engagement with literature, books, um, the world, essentially. And we have a whole kind of poetry anthology, which is all focused on empowerment. And I think empowerment and representation go really well together because that poetry does bring in those themes of race, religion, um, sexuality, and all of those different themes that come under the umbrella of representation. But also there is a more detailed kind of account of Girl, Woman, Other on there, which is obviously our book club book. Um, so if you are interested in listening a bit more about that, hearing about it, feel free to go read it. Um, I'm not sure how Spotify works. I might even be able to put a link in the in this in this that blog. So if you do want to go check it out, feel free to do that. Um, Deborah, do you want to add any closing? Check out our blog if you want to write stuff. Message me. I mean, email me. Sorry, <laughs> at my email. You know me. Um, all for that. And yeah, really looking forward to feedback and interaction. Hope you guys all have a great day. Bye. Yes. Thank you for listening.